But one of the things that the Bible gives us, you guys, is that it gives us, it gives us a comprehensive view of the world. It doesn't just speak to spiritual things or just to social concerns, or just to theological concepts. It really does speak to all areas of our life, and that includes our sexuality, too. And this is profoundly important for several reasons. Why do I say it's important? Well, there's a a Christian author, teacher, thinker, his name is Steve Garber, and he writes about the importance of being able to understand our sexuality and the importance that it really is for us. Listen to what he says. I don't have a quote up here, but um, I want you to hear what he says. He says, I am sure that unless we are confident that the Scriptures tell the truth about sexuality, about being bodies, about being full of sexual longings and desires, listen, unless it does all this, it is hard to believe that they are true when they speak about the rest of life. Why? Because your sexuality is deeply ingrained into your personhood. The Bible is going to tell us that you can't not be a person and not be a sexual being. That's how God made you. We're going to look at that tonight. But this is what I think it's also very important. Um, The Christian writer, thinker, C.S. Lewis, once wrote in a very famous essay called The Weight of Glory. He talks about um, our desires, our longings in this way. Listen to what he says. It would seem that our Lord, he's talking about Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then I love this line, we are far too easily pleased. You see, have you ever thought that when you think about sex, that whatever your view of it is, that it actually might be too small? That it might be too incomplete? You see, over and over again, the Bible shatters the ceiling, so to speak, and gives us this soaring, majestic, beautiful view of human sexuality. It... it, it, it literally makes... I love this line. It, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm proud of myself here, but listen to this. It makes what happens between the sheets on an average Saturday night on TCU's campus look like preschool because its view of sex is so beautiful. So I want to help you tonight with this. My aim is this. I want you to quit undervaluing sex so much. Yes, I said that right. Your view of sex is far too low compared to the Bible's. And you don't believe that. And so we're going to look at that tonight. And that's what I want and aim to show you. The Bible's view of sex is radically different than yours. In fact, it shatters what we often think about sex. And this is wonderful because it confronts y'all not just the traditional, um, old-fashioned view of sexuality, but it also will confront and critique a progressive secular view of our sexuality as well. The Bible will critique both, and it does so by giving us a stunning picture of what the Bible is. To quote Steve Garber again, I love this quote. Listen to me. He says this, He believes that the Bible gives us a picture of what it means to be holy and sexual at the exact same time. That's profound. 
Because our world, especially if you grew up in the church, has often told you you've got to pick one or the other. And the world, if you haven't grown up in the church, is saying you've got to pick one or the other. But to do both? Well, that's unheard of. Let me tell you, the Bible says exactly that. It's how to be holy and sexual at the same time. So we're going to look tonight at three main headings. The first is the content of sex. The second tonight, we're going to look at the goodness of sex. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the, um, I can't even remember, the purpose of sex. That's my third point tonight. So right off the bat, the idea of the context of sex. This, is, this might be old news to some, but it needs to be said. Look in verses 1 to 5 of 7. Paul says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is in quotes because, listen to what Paul is doing in this letter. He is writing a letter back to them who have written a letter to him. And in the, that letter that they wrote him, they have listed out several headings. And the first of those headings was, it's, or one of them was, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And he's going to go and dispel that thought. That's what he's doing in chapter 7 here. And listen to what he says. But because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And he talks about, for the wife's body doesn't belong to her only, but to the husband. And the husband's body doesn't, uh, doesn't belong to him only, but also to his wife. What is God saying here? Very simply, he is putting forth uh, this uh, very, very clear point. That for the Christian, the normative sexual ethic is to be kept in the confines of marriage. Period. Full stop. I'm done with this point, but I'm not because I keep going. That's, we could stop there. That's what he wants to say. But listen, it's not just that he's like throwing this out there as a rule. It's actually quite more than that. He's in, he is saying, you must. He's saying, husbands, I don't know how else, you, you must have sex with your wives. Wives, you must have sex with your husbands. It's what's really interesting about the Christian sexual ethic that even couples themselves don't have the right to refrain from sex from each other. That's the Lord's. The Lord has the authority to decide that. And that's what He says when He says, don't stop having sex unless it's by a season and for prayer. And only do that and then come back together so that Satan might not tempt you. Here's the point. The context of sex is to be held in marriage. Now, I must be crazy, I know, to stand up here and to tell you on a college campus that this is what the Bible teaches. Because it's easy to say, you know, haven't we, heard, haven't we heard this before, Ryan? I mean, haven't we advanced a little bit from the primitive understanding of things? I mean, that kind of sounds old-fashioned and prudish. Surely we must move beyond what Paul has said. I mean, after all, isn't it my body and I get to do with it what I want? Well, the Bible is going to say up in chapter 6, no, your body is not your own. So there's, there's a dead-on collision if you hold that view, okay? But listen to why I say it's not prudish at all. You see, in the world that the Apostle Paul was writing to, in Corinth, Corinth was a sex-crazed culture. In the first century, it looked everything, if not worse, than what our culture looks like today. You see, in Corinth, there were, like, this is what worship looked like. You went to the temple, you had sex with the temple prostitutes. If you were a male, you went and had sex with, you could pick your choice. 
male prostitutes or female prostitutes. If you were female, you could have your choice. But you go and do that to sort of get God to pay attention to you. How's that for going to worship? And that's what the sacred life looked like. You see, even in, in Corinthians chapter 5 right here, we see this story. You can go and read it when you go home. There is a man in the church that's literally having sex with his stepmother. That's in the church. And so Paul gives them an order. You've got to do something about this. You see, Corinth wasn't... Uh, wasn't Paul did not speak into a prudish culture at all. He was speaking into a culture that was every bit as sex-crazed and oversaturated with sex as our culture was today. Listen to what Michael Kruger, he's a professor, and he writes this. He says, One of the main ways that Christians stood out from their surrounding culture was their distinctive sexual behavior. Of course, this doesn't mean that Christians were perfect in this regard. No doubt, many Christians committed sexual sins. But Christianity as a whole was still committed to striving toward the sexual ethic laid out in the Scripture and the world took notice. I love that line. And the world took notice. One early church father who lived in the second century wrote this. Listen, he says this. We share our goods, but we don't share our wives. And for him to say that was to speak right against the dominant theme and the dominant way that the culture went of the day. Now, in other words, I want you to see that Paul's ethic was entirely countercultural, But... I need to say this. All of this being said, I want you to see that there is something incredibly powerful about sex. Why? Because just in a moment we'll see this at large, but I want you to see that sex is an incredibly unifying act. Look, in short, I'm just going to be graphic. Hold on to your seats. Ready? Emily Redmond is squirming right in this moment. Okay. And that's immortalized on the tape. Um, ten years from now, people are going to hear this. The Bible says over and over again that sex is more than just intercourse. Sex, says the Bible, is way, way more than an orgasm. You say something profound with sex, and that message is to be said with your spouse and your spouse only. Think about it like this. You may have heard this illustration before. Um, if you were to, uh, not at our house, but uh, at, well, go to a house in the winter, doesn't matter whose, there's a fire in the fireplace there. It keeps you warm. You love it. You're roasting marshmallows over it. I don't know, but you're enjoying the fire because it's doing a wonderful thing by keeping you warm. It's a beautiful thing when it's kept in the confines of the fireplace. But get a few coals outside of the fireplace and not pay attention to it. And the house can go up in embers. That's really what Paul's trying to say. Sex is a wonderful thing. Sex is a beautiful thing. But it's something to be kept in the confines of marriage itself. Why? Because when it gets outside of the context of marriage, you will be... It, look, God's, uh, God's laws have, they have teeth. And when you bite against them, they will bite back. And by that, I just simply mean that um, God is not this great killjoy in the sky trying to ruin your fun. He's not just saying don't have sex blindly. Okay, we're going to see in a moment that's not what he's up to. But he's trying to give you a picture because of this. Think about it like this. If I give you a new car and, and it says, this is the sort of gasoline to put in it, and you go, that doesn't really matter. I'm going to pour Aunt Jemima syrup in there and we're going to see how it goes. 
you will ruin that car. I don't care how much you think it might be good for you to run on Aunt Jemima syrup. It might be cheaper. It probably isn't. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> the point is, is that God is saying, this is the way that things, this things are. And if you kick, kick against it, it will come back and it will bite you. I'm not trying to be some guy that's just throwing rules and laws at you. I'm just trying to highlight what the Bible is saying, and that is the sex is to be expressed within the confines of marriage. We'll see why this is later on. The biblical witness is singular when it comes to sex. In marriage, period. Great. But the Bible also says something else about sex when it's practiced in this context. And do you know what it is? Here it is, our second point, that it is good. That sex is inherently good. It is incredibly good. It is wonderfully good. There is nothing bad about sex when held in the confines of that environment. To put it frank, um, God Himself, when He made us, was not taking a nap when He made our genitalia. It did not surprise Him to give us sexual organs. In fact, He did so, He looks at it and He says, That is good. That is wonderful. I delight in creating my creatures as sexual beings. And I delight, therefore, in giving them sex as a good gift to be expressed within the confines of marriage itself. Paul here assumes this in these verses. He has an incredibly high view of sex. Paul is saying that marriage is so good that a husband and a wife, they don't even have the authority to call it off. That's what's so amazing. He's saying that this, is, this ought to be normative, as it were, and regular in marriage. I mean, one pastor put it this way. God is saying that when you are married, go at it. Have sex. Have sex as much as you want. Have sex as, in, his, in, the, in all the rooms in your house, in all the bathtubs in your house, on the kids' toys. I don't care. <laughs> go for it. Because why? Listen, this is why. And this is why we titter and laugh. But listen, you're, you've just proved my point. You see, most of y'all are taking a view of the body. You are taking a view of the body that Paul himself was confronting. You see, if you know your classics, you know, that a, you know about platonic thought. I'm not talking about uh, I have a platonic relationship with a friend. I'm saying... No, the Platonists. The Platonists viewed the body as bad and the spirit or soul as good. And the body was trapping the soul, and so therefore the purpose or goal of life was to do away with the body. And so the body was just something to sort of be removed. But Paul speaks into that and he says, absolutely not. No, 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 no. God made the body. It is incredibly good. And you see, that's why we can sort of laugh and joke at it because you're proving the point that you actually believe that to some degree. Because it's actually hard to talk about sexuality without blushing or without averting your eyes because deep down, you don't know what to make of you as a body. It's a lot easier to think about Christianity as being a soulish religion. As being that which is concerned and connected with let's do spiritual things like read the Bible and go on mission trips and uh, you know, let's pray a little bit. But that, our, uh, that we might play, that sport... That the body that you have might be just as important as your soul? Well, listen, when Jesus was resurrected, He didn't come back as just a soul. He came back with a body, and one of the first things He said was, give me some fish to eat, I'm hungry. And you see, 
I just want to begin to show you that the goodness of sex is this, that it's incredibly physical, it is entirely physical, and therefore God does not blush at it. I don't know what your upbringing was. We're going to look at that in a second, but before we do, I think this is wonderful. The Scripture speaks highly about sex. It doesn't even try to cover it up. You see, um, do you know the, the book Song of Solomon's, the Song of Solomon and the Song of Songs, that um, in ancient Jewish literature, uh, that was something that like teenage boys couldn't even read until they were mature enough because it's so risque. Here's something else for you. This is straight from the Bible, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Ready? Here we go. He's writing this. Uh, he's talking about a, a father is giving wisdom to his son, which is really impressive. He says this, let your fountain be blessed. He's talking about your wife, your wife's womb, the idea of bringing forth many children. And he says, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. And then he says this, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, be drunk always in her love. I mean, how's that for a life verse? Anybody ready to take that up? Anybody want crochet and put that up in your home? <laughs> Who wants to put that on your Instagram feed with a nice sunset in the background? Be ravished. Yeah, Carter does. That's great. You've just been immortalized, buddy. Sorry. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, but that's what the Bible, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even try. It doesn't even try to hide it. Now, we laugh at it, right? We laugh at it because we don't know what to do with it, but the Bible itself has no problems talking about sex whatsoever. Why? Because it views it as incredibly good. One of the things that I like to talk about um, uh, that I think is a, a wonderful thing to sort of think through is why, um, why is this so good? Why is sex so incredibly good? And here's the reason. Because it's a pointer to something so much more incredible. It is, it is a pointer to a greater reality. We're going to look at that in a moment. But um, I, I love the quote of one of my former pastors. He says this, I don't want you to confuse the metaphor for the real thing. You see, sex is just a metaphor for a greater reality. And I think a lot of us, um, we, we don't like that idea. And let me prove it to you right now, okay? Uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Mike, uh, Mike is hilarious. Mike, uh, Mike and I used to work for the same ministry. We worked for uh, Young Life about 10 or 15 years ago. Mike was in Hollywood. He lived in Burbank. Um, still keep up with him. But he was a comic uh, on the side. He did stand-up comedy. He wrote for TV shows and the whole deal. He's flipping hilarious. And um, he and I were doing... He, he asked me, he's like, hey man, will you help me with this bit about um, Jesus coming back like on your wedding night? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. You guys are laughing because you know I'm going to make a go with this. So imagine the ceremony's over on your wedding night, Right? ceremony's over, you're back at the fancy hotel, right? Maybe you've got some nice negligee on and you're getting ready to have sex. It's your way night, you can do that. You can have a lot of it, like I said. And then, I mean, like right as things are about to get ready, on the door. You say, hold on, honey, I'll be right back. I'm going to check the door. You open the door, there in robed white clothes <laughs> is Jesus. And he's like, Ryan, my son. It's time. Let's go. Oh, hey, Jesus, can you give me like five minutes? Nope, it's time to go now. Well, I, 
have you got the top floors yet? Because, I mean, you can maybe come back, and then, you know, I get, nope, I got everybody else, let's go. Well, what about, like, California and Oklahoma? Have you got them yet? Yes, they've all been gotten, Ryan. You must come with me now. You see, the point, why is that so humorous? Because you're confusing the metaphor with the reality. You think the metaphor is better than the reality. And what Paul is saying over and over again is sex is just a pointer. It's just a pointer to something else. And that really is uh, where we want to, I want to press in now. And that is, what is, what is this real picture of what uh, the Bible tells us about what sex, sex's purpose is and what it points to? I've gotten a little bit ahead of myself in my notes, and I want to say something that's very, very important as an aside. I mentioned I don't know what you, what world you have been brought up in. You see, if you've grown up in the church, a lot of the time, sadly, the church has given a terrible witness. It has had a horrible message about sexuality. It's not that they have spoken untrue things but they've not done the best job at speaking about the goodness and the truth and the beauty of sex. And so what you often hear, and this was really prominent in my uh, college days, there was a book that came out called I've Kissed Dating Goodbye. Pledge cards were being signed left and right. Purity and promise rings were being sold all the time as a way to sort of say, this is the choice that I'm making. Now look, my point is, is to not belittle those choices if you have made them. Actually, I do believe that everything that I've just said, that the biblical Christian ethic is that you don't have sex until you're married. But here's what we began to see a lot. You see, we begin to think that the church or that our teaching or that the Bible teaches stuff like this, and I'm about to say, and it's not true. And that is, I've heard this taught this way, that if you have sex before you get married, you'll hate it that you'll be a miserable experience. And you know what? That may or may not be true. You might actually like it. And the reality is, is the, way, the reason you might like it is because it's designed to feel good. It's a gift given by God. It might be wrongly used, but that doesn't mean it's gonna, that it's going to be awful. You see, um, it may be, there might be tons of guilt and the whole nine yards. And that's exactly what uh, one writer, Lauren Winter, she writes a book called Real Sex, and I do recommend it. She writes this. She writes, our feelings sometimes deceive us, which is precisely the point. This is how sin works. It whispers to us about the goodness of something not good. It makes distortions feel good. It tells us we'd be better off uh, with pleasure in hell than sanctification in heaven. Secondly, if you might have heard this said before, that if you have sex with someone before marriage, God will not give you His best. That He sort of goes down the list and finds somebody else for you, and that's what you're stuck with because you've blown it. I want to tell you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. As if to think that God's sovereignty and goodness to you is somehow thwarted by your sin. What a weak God. And that's not the God of the Bible. He is infinitely kind. He is infinitely gracious. And He takes all of your sin, as nasty, as dirty, and as dark as it might be, casts it on His Son, and obliterates His Son for you. And now you begin to think, oh, I've got, like, that, weren't, that wasn't good enough. 
I need to add my heaping shame on top of that or feel really, really bad and guilty as if God couldn't do this. See, it's not true. It's a lie. And then lastly, I want to say this very carefully, that we can often think that if we've chosen not to have sex, that our virginity can be used as a bargaining chip with God. That if I've just sort of toe the line, if I just don't have sex before marriage, I can sort of trade the report card in and God will bless me. And I got news for you. He doesn't. He doesn't. He blesses you. He loves you. He delights in you. Not because of your sexual record. No matter how good it is and no matter how bad it is. And that is an amazingly freeing thing. Am I advocating that you just go have wild sex? No, not if you're not married. I'm advocating the biblical Christian sexual ethic. But I'm also saying, just because of your whatever your sexual record's like is not the thing that gets God to love you. And it sure as heck isn't the thing if you're in Jesus that keeps His love away from you. That needs to be said over and over again. Why? Because I deal with students left and right who carry boatloads of shame long into their college years about their past. And they carry tons of guilt and they've never really understood what the Gospel is. In fact, some of you... Some of the door for you, the doorway into seeing the beauty of the gospel will be God dealing with your sexual brokenness in new, fresh, and wonderful ways because His mercies go that far. They are that deep. They are that broad. Let's take a look lastly at what this wonderful picture of purpose, the purpose of sex is. Um, one of the things that we see from the uh, biblical witness, the biblical testimony, is that sex most certainly is used for uh, procreation, the idea of having kids. I'm trying to talk about the purpose of sex because I want you to know that unless you know the purpose of something, you don't know how it's supposed to be used. You see, if I held, gave you a hammer and you didn't know what to do with it, you might try to bake a cake with it and it's not really going to make a good cake. So you need to know the purpose of the thing to know how to use it and how to think about it. And so certainly sex was, is, is for the purposes of procreation. And um, this is one area where I'm, where I'm about to go that separates me as a Protestant from my uh, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, you see. Um, the, the testimony from the Roman Catholic Church is that it's for procreation and procreation only. But I do believe that the Protestant version, I am a Protestant, that uh, it gives us something far uh, greater, far more beautiful and fuller. And here's what I'd like to suggest to you that it is. Secondly, we see that sex is for pleasure. That it's for fun. That it's for play. That it's for enjoyment. And it's, that's why I say it's God's good gift to you. It is, um, you often hear this, uh, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. You ever heard that before? It's bad theology. It's not from the Bible. It's awful. Because what the Bible says is, you are body and you are soul. You are both. And both of them are good. And so, because of that, your sexuality is incredibly good and is to be used within the confines of marriage for great enjoyment and delight. And then lastly, sex is this. It is a unifying act. It is a way of saying physically what you have said with the rest of your life. It is a full giving. Sex is a picture of the vulnerability and safety that comes in marriage alone. Complete vulnerability, complete giving in the context of complete safety. 
It is therefore a way of saying non-verbally, I am yours exclusively and permanently. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. I've gotten a ton of stuff from him tonight, but he puts it like this. He says that sex is a non-verbal way of saying that what I do with my body here in this moment, I am doing with all other aspects of my life. And so you see, that is why the Bible tells us that sex outside of marriage is a no-go. Because what you're saying with your body is, here we go, we can do this right here, right now, but I'm not willing to commit to you with the rest of my life. I'm not willing to become one with you. I'm not willing to become that vulnerable. I'm not willing to become that deeply involved in your life. But put it in marriage, and it becomes a reflection of what you're saying with the rest of your life. This idea of a nonverbal sign is huge. Laura and I, my wife and I, we have, we have a sign. We have committed that when uh, back-to-back calls come in, uh, if she's calling me, if I'm meeting with one of you, and she calls once, and I'm with a student, I let it go. But if she calls right back, I pick the phone up, because we have, a, we have agreed, we have come to terms with the fact that that sign, that there, is a, that there is something going on, that's a signal for some sort of emergency or urgency. But now imagine for a moment, if I called her and said, twice, bring, 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 and she picks up and says, yeah, hey, what's going on? And I said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I like cinnamon rolls, <laughs> which I do. I like them a lot. I had one this morning. Um, I would have just abused that sign. Why? Because the sign now was just used to talk about my unhealthy appetite. <laughs> And therefore, sex, you guys, it always communicates a deeper reality on a permanent exclusive commitment. That is what sex is to be used for. And listen, when you use it outside of marriage, you break the sign. And you break the relational trust that is implicit between the two parties. Listen, that's why it is after all. Listen, y'all know this. You know this intuitively. You know it existentially. That is why after you actually have sex outside of marriage, the shame and the guilt start flooding in. Because in an oddly paradoxical way, the act that was supposed to bring you together has actually been the thing that breaks the trust between you and pushes you further and further away. And deep down you sense it. Sex is unique because it communicates to y'all even something deeper, even something greater than the covenantal love between a husband and a wife. It truly is a sign within a sign. You remember last week we said that marriage was a sign of the great commitment that Christ has with His people, His bride, the church. Well, what marriage is to commitment, sex, y'all, is to, it points to the intimacy and joy that comes with uh, our fellowship with God and God Himself. You see, what I'm trying to get at is this. That sex itself is actually a foretaste of the wondrous, rapturous love, joy, and intimacy that exists between God and His people. The ecstasy that exists even in that moment. The delight. The pleasure. The joy is but a drop of water compared to the oceans of the infinite delight that exists between God and His people. That is what it is pointing to. 
That is what is signing forth and showing. And that's, a, that's why it's so important that uh, the sign must be ex- rightly expressed in the context of marriage. A few more things, and then I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to go a little over tonight, um, but it's important. I want you to see, therefore, that um, if you have been somebody that has some sort of a sexual past or sexual brokenness in your past, will you let me, for just a moment, remind you of the gospel? Paul says this, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, period. That your old sins, that your old brokenness, that they no longer define you. That they no longer are the thing that you ought to look to to get your sense of worth or your lack of worth. But because of Jesus, He makes you new. This is what is all throughout the Scriptures. This is what's true of us. But what this also means is that I really want RUF to be a place where the sexually broken can come, where the sexually bent can find life, that they can find healing. And I expect of my leaders to be doing this, to be the sort of people that are saying, I'm a mess and I need Jesus. Because that's what the constant refrain of the Scriptures is. So what... um, What are we to do then? How are we going to be able to do this? How are we going to be able to live this way? I want to say this. Are you ready? You've got to quit looking at your nakedness and look to Jesus' nakedness. What? (laughs) Jesus' nakedness? What are you talking about, Ryan? Well, see, don't you know, don't you know that on the cross we see something absolutely shocking? Not only has Jesus been beaten within an inch of his life. Not only has he been put there by a kangaroo court based on trumped up charges, but as he is breathing his last, do you know he did it naked? Do you? You see, as, a, as if a dying a criminal's death weren't enough, he died a shameful death. Imagine being stripped down and paraded through campus, paraded in that stadium over there, with the eyes of the world looking on you, you would want to hide. And yet Jesus died. The King died. The shameful death. And so on the cross, He takes our shame and covers our nakedness caused by sin. Jesus Himself tells us that in Him is a covering that deals with our shame. Listen to what He says in the book of Revelation 3.18. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and here it is, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Here we see that the shame exposed is now covered. But why does He do this? Why would He go on to do this? Because He, y'all, is crazy about His bride, you and me. You see, in the Gospel we see a picture of a husband covering the shame of a wayward wife by his death. And this is so that he might be with her. And that picture, that picture of Jesus being with His beloved bride 
is what the picture of sex is all about. In the gospel, we see that Jesus would rather die for you than live without you. He is love sick for you. He will stop at nothing to win you. And one day, oh, one day, we who are His shall fall into His arms at long last. And we shall look at Him and face to face. And it will be an absolutely beautiful thing. Let me pray. Our Lord, thank You that You love us like this. And that this is the Gospel for us. Oh, that we might hear it and believe it and run to it with a reckless abandon. That You cover our shame. That You give us new life. This is the best news for our souls. And so now we get to sing of that amazing love that will never, ever, 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 ever let us go. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.